Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. All right. So, Joe, we were talking about before we started recording whether we were wrapping the week or the year. And either way, both just ended in the impeachment of the 45th president of the United States, only the third chief executive in American history to be impeached. And while as it stands now, it looks like he won't be removed from office. What do you think that means for him and his legacy? Well, the week in a lot of ways encapsulated the year. I mean, this was a year of controversy, of investigation. Nothing new for Donald Trump. He's faced this since his first day of office. Democrats and Republicans will continue to argue over whose fault that is. But it's not particularly surprising uh, that at the end of the year, uh, the president finds himself impeached. How it all happened is a little bit surprising. We started sitting down in March of this year. And I would say we spent 60 to 70 percent of our time talking about Bob Mueller and Russia collusion and uh, obstruction of justice. And then the world changed on a Friday night when Adam Schiff out of nowhere held a very quick press conference to say that there was a major story developing and it was about a whistleblower. And over the next month or so, the news came out about Ukraine and the, the call and the scheme to extort Ukraine. And then things moved faster than really I've ever seen anything in politics go. And if you, if you contrast the time that it took, say, for Ken Starr to put his case together, I mean, that went on for years and years. Or contrast Bob Mueller's two years, two plus years of putting it together with the speed of finding out about the whistleblower to the president of the United States being impeached. It was the speed of light uh, in politics. There are probably people at the beginning of this year who said this is the year the president will be impeached, but none of them would have guessed exactly why. You wrote an op-ed for The Times last week that got a lot of play. What, What did you write about? I was talking to some people at CNN, and I remembered where the idea came from. One of the young producers there came up to me and said, You know, she'd been looking at a lot of the material from 1998, and she said, in 1998, it seemed so much more solemn than it did in 2019. And I kind of looked at her and I said, solemn's not the right word. The word was serious. Uh, It was taken seriously in 1998. And that led me to write this op-ed and to relive some very painful days doing the research to do it. But the main point of the piece was, in 1998, both parties took what Bill Clinton did seriously. Democrats excoriated Clinton on the floor of the House, on the floor of the Senate. Uh, There were a couple of days where his presidency hung in the balance, where a certain United States senator told a White House staffer, tell him to get his act together in 48 hours or he's going to lose his presidency. And when we went to the floor of the House and then the floor of the Senate, While we had a pretty good idea what was going to happen, it felt like something very different and very, very important for the country. 
This one in some ways felt like a budget battle. In 1998, there was a body of evidence that everyone used for the argument. Everyone had a different idea of what the evidence said and what it added up to, but it was the same basic facts. In 2019, this was like a partisan fight where the Democrats compiled a bunch of evidence. They got the best they could. Republicans made up their own. And it was conspiracy theory after conspiracy theory, process fight after process fight. And while it was historic that the president was impeached, it didn't really feel dramatic. Uh, I think for me, until about the last hour of the impeachment debate, when Steny Hoyer got up, when Adam Schiff got up, that felt there was there was drama in the room. But before that, I think the Republicans were very effective and sold their soul to do it, but were very effective in sort of creating this carnival atmosphere, so this circus atmosphere around it, that there's nothing to see here. This is just the normal politics. The reality is the president's still impeached. He's still one of only three U.S. presidents to be impeached. And I can tell you from my own experience, uh, no matter what they go out and say in public for the rest of their lives, no matter what they tweet, that sticks with them. Uh, it sticks with them. It's the first line of the obituary. That's a cliche, but it happens to be an accurate one. But there's just there's just no way to compare 1998 to 2019. The underlying offense was very different in its gravity and impact on the American public and our national security. And the behavior of the Republican Party was very much like a cult uh, rather than a political party. They were willing to do anything, to say anything, to make any argument, to defend Donald Trump, no matter what the facts were. The seminal moment for me was watching Congresswoman Wesco, I believe from Arizona. She was the one who was on the floor talking about how I read all the transcripts. I went to all these hearings and a reporter said, is it ever appropriate for a United States president to ask a foreign government to investigate someone, an American citizen. And she looked at the reporter with a straight face and said, President Trump didn't do that. And when everyone in their reporter scrum's jaws got off the floor, she said it again. So it's, um, it's a really interesting time, I think, for the Republicans. If anyone who's listening to this has not listened to Rick Wilson, the last episode before this one, I would really recommend it because... He gives you a sense from an insider's point of view, the convulsions um, that the Republican Party have gone through in the last, in the Trump era. Do you think because of this shift in the political perspective and impeachment and the seriousness, as you called it, as opposed to solemnity, do you think that that is now setting us up for all future instances where there is one party in the White House and one party in the House? And I'm particularly thinking of the next time there's a Democratic president and a Republican House that we're just guaranteeing an impeachment process much more quickly than we've seen in the last two back to back. I think it's impossible to know. I think we have to see how this plays out. Someone's going to pay a price for this impeachment. And we don't know whether it's Democrats or Republicans. If it's Democrats, I suspect that we won't see a repeat of this because the Democrats paid a political price. If the Republicans somehow are put at a disadvantage, it, it might. 
everyone needs to go back because our memories are so short. But if you look at the entire 2019, Nancy Pelosi spent most of the year saying, slow down, no impeachment, we're not going to impeach. She held the caucus back. Uh, she had 60 to 80 members who wanted to impeach in 2017. You know, that's the one story the Republicans were told on the floor that's absolutely true. She kept the caucus in line. She did not think impeachment was right for the caucus. She's the best political thinker alive right now and still involved. You know, I only say still involved because I think Bill Clinton would give her a run for her money, but they're in the same class. She understood the dangers of going forward with an impeachment. Ukraine made it impossible for her to resist any longer, and I think the principles that she brings to the table directed her to go forward. She's never um, unaware and has her finger on the pulse of how the politics impact her caucus. Again, for most of the year, she was saying, we're not going to do this. Uh, so I think that's instructive on going forward. I think what I worry about is I don't see states people like Nancy Pelosi in the Republican Party. I live tweeted the um, impeachment debate and probably 30% of the tweets were about, where are the women on the Republican side? Why are all they old white men? Oh, there's diversity. One has a blue tie and one has a red tie. I don't see people who rise above the politics in the Republican Party. So I worry that if they win back the House and there is a Democratic president, that the inmates will be running the asylum. Speaking of Nancy Pelosi, she actually seems to be following your advice. Explain what you suggested a couple of weeks ago and what's happening. Well, on, on the off chance that Nancy is listening, she does not take my advice. But seriously, I think, I don't know, three or four episodes ago, I, I made a suggestion that the Democrats not immediately send the articles of impeachment over to the Senate for a couple of reasons. One that I knew at the time and one that I realized just in the last couple of days. The one that I knew at the time was the Democrats, once it gets to the Senate, don't have very much leverage. But until those articles go over, they do have some. All they want out of the trial in the Senate is for Mick Mulvaney and John Bolton to be put under oath. They don't even have to be on the Senate floor. But Democrats still desperately want that to happen because they know that the last pieces of the puzzle will get put in and we will see the complete picture. And what looked awful already for Trump becomes exponentially worse. And the reason they want that is because that puts enormous pressure on Republican senators. Uh, if you're a Republican senator up for re-election, re Bolton and Mulvaney testify, it's a whole lot worse than we thought it was, and you still vote to acquit him, that's a problem. Uh, so that's, that's what they want. This is a leverage point. The genius of Nancy Pelosi that I watched over the last couple of days was another leverage point was keeping control of the narrative. And what she did by allowing Congress to go home was to control the narrative between now and when they come back in January 6th. From now until then, this is what we're going to be talking about. And if you're Martha McSally or Cory Gardner or Susan Collins, you're going to have reporters chasing you around over the Christmas break saying, you know, what do you think about what Nancy Pelosi's done? Not how quickly you're going to get through this trial. So I think there was a broad reason to keep some leverage, but a very clever tactical maneuver uh, by the speaker 
we shouldn't be surprised. She's been one step ahead of everybody the entire time. Trump seems to be trying to goad her into quickly moving it over to the Senate. And I think I read an article about uh, White House Counsel's Office trying to look at alternative ways to get it there more quickly, which I'm not sure legally how they would do that. But Probably the meta point, I should have mentioned this in the last question, of the Pelosi gambit and what it does long term is it exposes everyone's equities here. Everybody wants something different. Pelosi and Schumer want witnesses because they want to get to the ultimate truth because they think it's way worse. In fact, they know it's way worse based on some things that they know that they haven't been able to bring to the public. Mitch McConnell wants to protect Mitch McConnell and his Republican senators. If you gave Mitch McConnell a choice 10 straight times of, would you rather Donald Trump be reelected and you become minority leader or you stay majority leader and Joe Biden or uh, Elizabeth Warren is president? 10 out of 10 times. No question. He'd say, no question. I want to be majority leader. He thinks that is a more powerful role, obviously, for him. He is self-interested, not interested in the future of his party. Uh, he's interested in his own future. Well, I think it actually might be more powerful for the party, too. I mean, when you control judge confirmations for another four years, not only will you get a generation of conservatives on the bench that they've already fortified, but you get maybe two. I think that's true. So we know what Democrats want. We know what Mitch McConnell wants. And we know because Donald Trump can't keep his mouth shut, we know what he wants. He wants a trial right away. He wants to be acquitted and he wants to go on a national tour for about three months talking about how I got away. I got off. They, they have nothing. They've got nothing. So what Pelosi and Schumer have done is highlighted and driven a wedge between the president and Mitch McConnell. And that is very dangerous for Republicans because if you're a Republican senator, it, it, in, in a weird way, encapsulates all of the benefits and pitfalls of being a Republican right now. Donald Trump is a reliable motivator of his base. And if you're with Donald Trump, his base will be with you. But that's not enough to get any senator elected in most statewide races in all of these toss-up states. If you go the Mitch McConnell route and try to do just something that's speedy and doesn't necessarily vindicate Trump, that probably helps you with the people in the middle. But it also subjects you to a bunch of mean tweets from Donald Trump who will go after individual senators. He's done it before for not doing what he wants, which is why they're so afraid of him. So this schism in the equities of the two Republican institutions was already there. But what Pelosi and Schumer have done have very effectively made it the story. And we're going to watch that play out because at the end of the day, McConnell's going to do what's in McConnell's interest, not what's in Trump's interest. And that is going to drive the president crazy. Uh, I don't mean to be flip here, but it's going to be kind of fun to watch. One thing about the Pelosi gambit is legally and procedurally, she can hold the articles forever without sending them over to the Senate. But politically, there's got to be a cost there. How long can she do this? Legally... Uh, and I've consulted with a lot of legal experts in the last couple of days trying to find this answer and nobody has it because there is no answer. The Senate could move without getting the articles of impeachment sent over. There's no precedent for this. 
Uh, but I think the, the political question is much more important and relevant one. I think she's got a very short leash on this. This works very well for over the holidays. But I think once Congress is back, I think they'll apply a very heavy pressure on the witness issue. She has a week or two, uh, and then I think she'll need to send them over. The Democrats have made clear that this is a very serious and solemn moment, a very historic moment. And ultimately, they won't want to undermine that by playing politics with it. I mean, politics drives this. This is a tactic, not a strategy. It is not a good strategy long term to cheapen it. She knows that. So I think you're looking at uh, this and the broad outlines of the rules of a Senate trial to be sorted out by mid-January. And you're looking probably at a trial starting late January. So let's talk about the editorial that appeared in Christianity Today, a conservative publication that was founded by by Billy Graham, or he's affiliated with it. No, it was founded founded by Billy Graham. Founded by him. And it said Trump should be removed from office because what he did was immoral. Did you get to read it? I did. I did. I was on um, CNN as it came out. So we were all sitting there with our phones reading through it going, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. You weren't already a regular reader of Christianity Today? I'm I'm more of a a heathen gazette reader myself. Nice. Sort of pagan uh, times. But Christianity Today is not a big one in my inbox. But I was sitting there getting ready to go on live television trying to figure out how important of a publication it was. And I don't, on speed dial, have five evangelical leaders. But it struck me that the way to look at this is you'll know it's important if Trump attacks it. There you go. That is the answer. And on cue, he attacked it. And he attacked it in a bizarre way, well, in a Trumpian way. He basically said that Christianity Today and the legacy of Billy Graham, as opposed to Franklin Graham, who also attacked it, was the radical left and the non-believers, and that all Democrats are non-believers. If you didn't believe in having unlimited guns, you didn't believe in God. It was just a personal vitriolic attack on both the editor uh, who wrote it and the organization that, remember, Billy Graham started. And as a point of context, and which was made clear in the editorial, they wrote a similar editorial 21 years ago when Bill Clinton was, based on a morality failure, he no longer should be serving as president. From the same publication? Same publication. Interesting, I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, and a really interesting historical point is while there was not an editorial, Billy Graham in 1973-74 came out against Nixon, and he made the case that what the Senate Watergate hearings disclosed and the tapes disclosed uh, meant that the president did not have the moral standing to lead. So there is a historic, long historical precedent for the teachings of Billy Graham to make this kind of statement. And it was a religious point here too, right? They were saying taxes and judges aren't enough, but supporting Trump risks the reputation of their religion and their religious beliefs. Yeah, the cliff note version was it debased our moral standing. It gave us no standing to go preach and to go convert if we support someone like this. And they use as the basis for making the decision the impeachment process, not the excess Hollywood tape. That's exactly what I was thinking. Not the serial adultery, not the paying off porn stars. The how the president betrayed the public trust 
in his official actions as president. So very different than what they argued with Bill Clinton. And I've spent some time trying to figure out why now, what are the motives. There's, there's part of me that thinks that some in the evangelical movement that made a deal with the devil, the devil being Trump, because judges were so important to them. And they now got their judges and they're able to say, hold on a second, we don't need this guy anymore. He's not a moral, upstanding Christian. That may be a little too much speculation. Uh, and I don't want to cast dispersions on the editor who wrote it or, or the magazine. Take it at face value. The question is, what does it mean? I, I just don't think anyone can know yet. It is a crack in the most solid Trump voting base, white evangelicals. And if you say uh, to a person of color, evangelicals are this, they will always tell you, please don't throw African-American evangelicals in the same because there's a huge population there that do not vote or act or think like white evangelicals, even though they share the same basic religious teachings and tenets. But among white evangelicals, the, the most reliable base for Donald Trump and have been very quiet in any criticism of any of the things he's done. What immediately came to mind when I started thinking about the political implications of this was I remember being at a talk that Karl Rove gave in 2001, 2002. And he was asked, why was the election so close? Why did it have to go down to hanging chads in Florida? And his answer surprised me a lot. Uh, his answer was the story about George Bush drunk driving that came out a week before the election, in his estimation, uh, caused 4 million evangelicals to stay home. None of them voted for Gore, but they stayed home because they looked at it and said, he's not a good Christian, that he did that and he covered it up. The world has changed a lot since then. Uh, how much of the world has changed, I don't know. But this, this sure is something interesting to look at. Joe, let me ask you this. Back during the Clinton impeachment, you stood at the podium in the White House and said there should not be any witnesses on the floor of the Senate. They were just trying to make a circus. Is that a little bit hypocritical based on what you're saying now? No, but I hope they burn the tapes. Nobody can hear them. I wasn't Lordy. I, Yeah, Lordy. I actually, um, on the face of it, it does sound very hypocritical. And I think it, there's been a lot of, both on the Democratic side and the Republican side, of swapping talking points from 1998, uh, Lindsey Graham being the worst. Um, but, you know, there, there were some quotes from Jerry Nadler from 1998 that he had to eat uh, this time. Here's why I think in this case uh, it's not only not hypocritical, it's incredibly important that there's witnesses in the Trump impeachment in 1998, Ken Starr had done a very long investigation. Dozens of witnesses, everyone who was involved in the case, went into that grand jury and testified under oath, including the President of the United States. The President of the United States even gave a blood sample. There was nothing left to know. What Republican House managers were doing was they wanted to create a circus on the Senate floor. They wanted, more than anything, they wanted Monica Lewinsky to stand in the well of the Senate and to tell her story uh, because they thought that would create a hysterical environment that might move Democrats to convict President Clinton. But it wouldn't have added a single new piece of information. Now, if you remember, they did get uh, uh, Monica Lewinsky and Vernon Jordan and Sid Blumenthal under oath again on a videotaped deposition. And it turned out that Monica was a very strong witness for the Democrats. She took their case apart. What she did 
is she told the house managers the whole story, most particularly all the stuff Ken Starr left out. And it was devastating to the house managers because Starr had misled the Republicans in the House on the case by leaving out exculpatory evidence. We're in a wholly different situation now. The people closest to the president, the people who helped facilitate this crime, this extortion scheme against Ukraine, have not gone under oath. They have not told anyone what their story is. John Bolton has indicated in an attempt to sell his book when it comes out that he's got a lot to say. But no one's raised their right hand and said, I swear to God, what I'm telling you is the truth. And for Democrats, that's the final piece. They have enough to impeach. Obviously, he's been impeached. They have enough if this was done on the merits to remove him. But this is more. This puts tremendous pressure on Republicans to think hard about their vote uh, in the Senate. Again, I don't think they will sway them. But it's a very different. So for anyone who says it's hypocritical to be arguing for live witnesses now, they are, it is totally apples and oranges. In 1998, the puzzle was put together. There weren't any more pieces. We have big pieces of this puzzle yet to come together. Just last week, uh, a news story came out citing former White House aides saying that they know that the person who told Donald Trump that it was Ukraine interfering in our elections was Vladimir Putin. So when you saw Republican after Republican standing up and screaming about Ukraine meddling, that talking point came from Vladimir Putin. That's a big piece of the puzzle. There are more pieces that we should see. So that's why I'm for it this time. Uh, I'd be more than willing to admit now that I'm not in the game to say, oh, yeah, yeah, (laughs) I'm a hypocrite. I just was doing my job. And I'm sure there you can find other examples where I was hypocritical, but this is different. Would you put odds on them getting sworn testimony? I mean, I think it's fair to say it still be would be somewhat circus-like to have some of the witnesses on the floor. I would not put odds on um, uh, Bolton or Mulvaney actually being on the floor. I'd put better odds, but not still good odds, on Bolton, Mulvaney, and the two guys from OMB uh, who actually facilitated all of this stuff. Uh, being deposed and maybe even being deposed on camera. The political game that's being played right now is Democrats only need four Republican senators to defy Mitch McConnell and vote with the Democrats on what the rules of the trial are. Remember in 1999, Trent Lott and Tom Daschle got together and in a very painstaking way, but a very clever way, reached an agreement that put this Uh, It was a two-step process. They reached an agreement that said, here's how we're going to go forward. And then in the middle of the trial, we're going to take another vote on witnesses. And that's what they did. In the middle of the trial, they voted and they voted to do these depositions. It was something that the Democrats could live with, uh, the Republicans could live with. We were livid at the White House. We were like, we didn't think it should happen, but we didn't didn't have a vote, uh, which should tell you something about the, the, the change dynamics. I think that there are enough vulnerable Republican senators that they're going to strongly consider siding with the Democrats on witnesses. Uh, There was an ABC poll out that showed 75 percent of Americans think there should be live witnesses. Sixty five percent of Republicans think there should be live witnesses. If you're in Colorado, you're in Arizona. These are powerful arguments. 
While all of this is going on, the Democrats are still trying to suss out who their nominee is going to be going into 2020. And last week, we saw a debate with seven candidates at the moment. What did you make of the debate? And do you think this is the final seven and the nominee will come out probably right around Super Tuesday? I don't think we'll know the nominee by Super Tuesday. The most significant seven were not on stage although they met the criteria, but I do think that Mike Bloomberg's money impacts the process, so you can't dismiss him. Is Bloomberg really in this to get the nomination, or is he in this just to mess with Trump? Um, He's in this to get the nomination. He could mess with Trump without being uh, in the race. I think, this is just my theory uh, on, on Bloomberg, I think he's betting on coming in and disrupting Super Tuesday in a way that we go to a convention without a nominee. And you got four or five candidates sitting around the room and Joe Biden says, I can beat Donald Trump, look at the polls. And Elizabeth Warren says, I've got, I've got the energy, I've got the ideas, I've got what people want. And Bernie Sanders says, I'm Bernie Sanders. I got 15 million people who will walk through fire for me. And they turn to Mike Bloomberg, and Mike Bloomberg takes out a checkbook and says, I got a check here for $5 billion. Anybody would top that? And everyone looks around and says, we'll go with the guy with $5 billion because (laughs) that's important. That's my theory. And if my good friends uh, who work for Mike Bloomberg hear it and want to, like, call and yell at me, you know my number. It's funny when you look back on the year. I did not think we'd we'd have so much clarity on uh, President Trump. And impeachment and all of that by the end of this year. I just didn't. And I thought we'd have a lot of clarity on the Democratic field. I thought we'd know by now who the nominee was. Wrong on both, obviously. We don't know who the Democratic nominee. My uh, prediction uh, of this morning, which will hold for a week or so, is that Amy Klobuchar could win the Iowa caucuses. She had a, a good debate she performance, a, judging by Twitter, which is a small yeah. little bubble. She had a great debate. She's had several good debates in a row. She's well-known in Iowa. And the front runners are cannibalizing each other. And no one is going after her. And it's, it feels very similar to 2004, where Howard Dean was up there and they were all this fighting. And John Kerry just sort of slid in out of nowhere in early December of 2003 He was at 4% in Iowa, in last place, in I think sixth or seventh place. Um, He won the Iowa caucuses. I think Amy Klobuchar can win the Iowa caucuses with 20% of the vote. I also think people Buttigieg could win with 22 or Joe Biden with 24 or Bernie Sanders. I mean, all of these things are possible. I don't think once you get out of the Midwest, Amy Klobuchar's appeal is broad enough for her to win the nomination. I don't think that propels her to victory in New Hampshire. So New Hampshire becomes a primary unto itself, not influenced by Iowa. Then you go to Nevada and South Carolina. We're going to get to the end of Super Tuesday, and there's a real chance that we're going to be still sitting here scratching our heads. I have not changed my basic view of the race. It's still Joe Biden's to lose. Uh, He has the broadest and the deepest appeal. There's a poll came out last week that said 51% of Democratic uh, registered voters are still open to changing their mind. Except for Joe Biden's voters and uh, Bernie Sanders' voters. They're, they're in. There's going to be a lot of thrash and moving around, and it's going to be really interesting. And um, again, any one of five people 
can win the Iowa caucuses, in, in my estimation, which is going to make it as a political junkie. This is going to be uh, it's going to be a great two or three weeks leading up to it because we're going to find out who's got the goods and who doesn't, and that's fun to watch and it's important because if you don't have the goods, you'll lose to Donald Trump. Uh, so this is really good for the Democratic Party, and I think really good for our prospects, even though they're beating each other up. We will enter 2020 with a wide open race. If we'd been sitting here talking about this one year ago, I would have thought it highly unlikely that it wasn't down to two people, that it wasn't Joe Biden and you tell me who, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders. On the stage last week, I think there were four legitimate uh, contenders to get the nomination and one long shot, my long shot being Klobuchar, because I just I, – I'm not convinced of her appeal beyond uh, the Midwest. I don't think Steyer or um, Andrew Yang have a chance to win this. But at this point in the race, that's a lot of people. The campaign started early. There have been six debates, I think, and they just haven't sorted anything out. And a lot of people keep saying, why do you do Iowa and New Hampshire first? And we probably shouldn't do Iowa and New Hampshire first, the we being Democrats. And that should probably change just like the Electoral College should change. But the one thing it forces these people to do is to demonstrate they can do retail politics, that they can go and look a voter in the eye and say, here's why you should vote for me. We're in an age where retail politics are less important given the ability to reach people directly on social media platforms. But I'm not sure that there isn't some positive to making sure the Democratic candidate has that ability going into 2020. Trump got elected without doing any retail politics at all. Close your eyes and remember the time that he went out and shook hands with people. He just doesn't do it. Close your eyes and think about the time he had a really interesting back and forth with a voter. He didn't do it. So you don't have to do that. Maybe it's my nostalgia. It is an art that I think is important because it allows you to govern better. When you can sit in the Oval Office and say, I remember Brad Smith in Des Moines and the problem they were having with getting their kid to pay for college. These things matter, and you have more humane government when you have a politician who's actually interacted with the public as opposed to what we have now, which is, well, inhumane is a nice way to put my feelings about the president. Well, I'd be interested to see what Bloomberg's role will continue to be and whether your prediction of the final four and the $5 billion check rings true. But for now, thanks to our listeners for listening this week and for this year. Until next week. Katie, I'm glad that um, we got together in March. It's been a great nine months, but I'm even happier that you found someone to spend the rest of your life with. Me too. Uh, we're talking uh, to an engaged Katie Barlow. Yes. Uh, I'm looking at a beautiful ring. You can't see it um, if you're listening <laughs> now. But uh, let me describe the glow and the <laughs> smile. I knew you were going to have a happy holiday season, but not this happy. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers. 